Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 95 is R. Stevie Moore, the godfather of home recording, which he has been doing since the late 60s and has hundreds of albums. You're right now listening to I Like to Stay Home from Glad Music 1986. The 80s is when he really started packaging what he does, putting it out in the form of compilations to a wider audience. And he also likes to re-record older material. We're going to be talking about two songs from the 2019 brand new album, Afterlife. Songs are pop music, which was originally recorded in 1974, then again in 2011. And then Take Back, which originated in 2004. We're also going to discuss another very recent work, The House Is Not In Order. It's a poem that Stevie wrote, to which music was added by Alan Jenkins and Kettering Vampires. The album is The Embodiment of Progressive Ideals, 2018. As a bonus song, we're going to throw in Pervert, which I know from the 2016 compilation World War IV. And we're going to conclude by listening to I Hate People. Again, that was originally recorded in 1980, but the version you're going to hear is by R. Stevie Moore and Jason Faulkner from the 2017 album Make It Be. For more information, please see rstevemore.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And we really appreciate your support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of I Like to Stay Home, released on the 1986 Glad Music, but recorded sometime before that, early 80s, something like that. Glad Music is 86, so this would have been 85, yeah. I Like to Stay Home is a has its own unique story. It's on Glad Music. It was really never on a home tape. It's one of the few of my thousands of songs that never really got an original home demo. There's some kind of acoustic run through somewhere. I couldn't even tell you where, but I was going into the studio weekly for these sessions for this new Rose album, Glad Music, you know, and that's two years worth. This song went straight to the studio instead of there being a home version. And I kind of regret that because my whole career is all about bonus tracks, you know, underground. Guess what I just found? You know, you're not going to believe this. I had totally forgotten about that there was a demo, blah, 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 blah. But that's the only version. And it turns out, I mean, it's, it, the irony is that it's the most viewed YouTube. People know me as the guy that likes to stay home. Sure. And yes, even though you're known for lo-fi, this interview is going to feature that I like to stay home is the closest to that, at least it's old, that we're actually going to hear today because you've just recorded this Afterlife album, which is, so we'll hear two songs that are somewhat older, but are re-recorded all shiny bright, and then the other one was just recorded last year or so. This will be more beginner-friendly, let's say that, sonically. Yep. So we're going to hear pop music first, which I know has gone through at least three iterations. Do you want to say a little bit about what this song is and its history before we hear it in full, and then we'll talk more in depth about it? There's really not much to say because, I mean, all of my songs are like this. This has a unique story, too, in that it was kind of a lost 
1974 home version, and I always liked it, you know, and my closest fans and scholars always liked it, but I, you know, it was never heard. And Afterlife is a strange compilation in that we tried to, me, I'm, it's not even my choices, it's pretty much the label and Erwin Chusid who helped choose the songs and we tried to keep it, you know, weirdo free and keep it just light, just the pop part of me. And I go along with anything these days. I, you know, normally I ruin my albums with taking left turns and stylistic underground noise, whatever. But pop music, I just decided to do it. This whole past decade, I moved back to Nashville from New Jersey after 33 years up there. And went into studios here with friends and started recording higher quality stuff instead of the lo-fi stuff, which I hate that term, lo-fi. I mean, it's all just recording, recording. Everything doesn't have to sound 48-track, Journey, Madonna kind of stuff. But what else can I say? Pop music, there's not much to say about it, even lyrically. I don't know. What does it mean? I really don't know.
So I think this is a great example of just the kind of chord progression you do, which is, it sounds more messed up than it is. <laughs> that it goes between this sort of genre thing, the dun, 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 the, the hook. But then this verse here, this is one of your few songs that's actually like the chords are on the internet readily. And it seems like it's all major chords, right? But it's like from D to D major to F major, C, G, A, you know, so it's not really staying exactly in one key, but it's basically something roughly in G, though it never really resolves to that. (laughs) I forget. I know what you're saying. And I'd have to pull it apart on the guitar or on a piece of paper. There's one minor chord, and you know, by heart. I know what you're saying. It's it's pretty positive in the fact that it's a pop music major chord thing. And it has a lot of old doo-wop things, you know. Pop music, da-da-da, like me. Right, but you combine that with this, the bridge even more so, but the verses right up front. I associated this in my own learning to write songs with a Beatles trick, which is make something that's easy on the ears tonally, but then throw in little unexpected left turns. So, you know, you've got little things in the, in the time signature here, right at the beginning, right? It's, it looks like it's two measures of seven, eight. It's two measures of seven, eight, and one measure of seven, four. I had to just stop and count that out. It sounds natural enough. It's just a matter of let's just jump ahead. It would be natural if you were four on the floor dancing the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Well, my whole career, it's all my songs kind of have that stuff. And I don't even think about it. It just comes, that's the way it comes out from the early days until more recently. And vocally, do you write vocal melodies in your head or do you write them with your throat? If that makes sense. In other words, a lot of your singing, especially now when you're trying to recapture your falsettos of youth, it's not exactly something that seems like it would come naturally out of your voice, right? You have a low voice like me, the kind of thing that you're doing in the bridge here, like that's sort of the normal range. But if you sort of write it as if, you know, well, a saxophone could be doing it, a guitar could be doing it, anything. I'm just, I got a melody in my head. I'll just do that with my voice. Like, that sounds like your approach. I guess so. But again, there's no analysis that could tell the story. I mean, it's how it happened. I didn't plink it on a piano. Ding, 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 ding. That's the way it came out. Voice, not saxophone. As far as, I mean, I understand what a saxophone kind of addition would come later. But I mean, yeah, these are all things I don't think about. I can't really explain them. And again, with lyrics, too. I mean, I don't know what I'm saying. And all the left turns, the crazy bridge. I was a little bit nauseous. See, I couldn't find the sign of a cause. So, slowly my dad hearing me, easily listening, pause. I mean, it, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's got kind of a, a medieval feel there, that having that go into the minor key, but then you're doing little chromatic we started in E minor, but we're jumping up so that you're doing F sharp, but then down to F as a transition, and then you're back to E minor. So that's, again, it's roughly, the E minor is the relative minor of the G. So the whole song is in G, but there's almost no actual G in it. <laughs> well, you have great ears, I can tell. I mean, Oh, well, this one I actually pulled out a guitar and, you know, looked up the chords online. So great. Whereas the second song here, let's just get it out there. We can talk more about the arrangement of the first one, even after this is out there. Take back. So this is another really interesting chord progression. I couldn't find that online, and I don't even know what you're doing, but it's very thick and rich and makes you feel, I guess. Can you say a little about this song before it plays here? 
Well, sure. And I'm really glad you chose that one. That, too, is a sort of a personal favorite. I forget when I first did it. Now that it's coming out on Compilation Album in 2019, I always kind of forget the origins. I think you told me. 2004. Well, so I saw there's a 2004 version on Conscientious Objector, but also a 2000 version on The Young and More Show, which is more arranged. That's right. And those two albums were done at the same time, pretty much. They're totally different. And I was doing it live acoustically for a little while. The songs, it's very simple. D... C, G, and then it's that mystery chord, which was in the E-flat, major seventh. So I really like the pacing of this just because there's no breaks between the verses, you know, until you get quite a bit into the song. It's almost all verses. Yeah, it has a breakdown before it gets back to the final verse. Yeah, that's pretty much all it is. And nice lyrically, too. It's my humor and my little poetry stuff. Transfer my ass to the shelter. This is more recent. Maybe you can say a little more about the lyrics here because there's certainly a lot of it's a rock and roll trope. Take me back. But the fact that this is literally like, this sucks, please take me home. It's a cry for help. (laughs) You know, like, I didn't want to come here. Take me back or take back, too, which is also 
like a metaphor for returning something to the store for exchange or refund, <laughs> take back. And I, I was also thinking of cream Disraeli gears. Take it back. Take that thing right out of here. <laughs> you know, it goes from being very immediate. There's only one place to be now lying down in my bed asleep now that I'm tired and bored. You know, just talking about the emotions of the moment to take cover. It's dangerous being an outsider nauseous from the car ride. So actually combining those two things, that it sounds like it could be just any board, you know, that whole dangerous being an outsider. You're not doing deep psychological analysis of yourself, but you're getting a little... <laughs> it's Save Our Stevie. And you know what else is funny? Pop music and Take Back both contain the lyric nauseous. That just hit me. On pop music is that strange bridge. I was a little bit nauseous. See, and then Take Back. Nauseous from the car ride, potholes and bumps in the road. So they both have nausea in them. All right. Well, I think you've picked a title for the episode, which would be Our Stevie Moore Makes Us Nauseous. Is that good? <laughs> yeah, Pepto-Bismol <laughs> rock. I'll workshop it. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> now, we got both those things out there. Let's talk about the phrasing. And again, I know you're saying you don't overthink this. Obviously, given your volume of recording, you're not overthinking things. Like it's a matter of if it didn't go well, you'll just record something else later or record another version of it. Don't get hung up. And you know, if you do enough things, then some of them are going to strike a chord, are going to stick with you. And you're going to want to do subsequent versions. People are going to glom onto them, but you don't know at the time, right? You're just kind of, you're just going. Sure. The fact that my repertoire goes into the 400 double albums on Bandcamp you know, it's absurd to the point to where I have been so prolific, I'm not anymore. And that's one of the big stories. Is, is this whole story about me, and there's a new documentary film coming out, blah, blah, blah. But everything is about how it was, not how it is. And I listened to the great Jason Faulkner interview, and he's just on top of his game. He's been struggling and pushing as hard as he possibly can. Now we've lost music business, and what are you going to do? It's just we're artists, and we're trying to be creative, but we're fucked, you know. And But he's still got the energy and the age that I've lost, and I'm losing my health and, and everything, and I'm also fatigued, and I just don't give a damn about sitting down and writing pop songs anymore. And it breaks my heart, but I got the advantage of already having this massive back catalog. So that's what I spend my time doing is promoting my career as if I'm my own manager. You know, it's strange. And to go and visit these songs and try to figure out what did I do there? A D and then I went to a minor and then this and that, you know, and I miss those days. I just, you know, I live alone. I need an engineer to help me out to do those things because it, it's overwhelming for me to sit and do what I used to do in my sleep. You know, the 70s and 80s and 90s were just full of everyday recording. Plus my great attitude of there's nothing on the cutting room floor. People say I'm the man that needs an editor. And sure, that's exactly right. But however, on the other hand, everything I do is valid for my story. That's for others to pick up what I've left behind and whatever. I love bootlegs. We have favorite artists and we love everything they do, even the stuff that we hate. It's still there and it's output. All I do pretty much now is spoken word. And I love doing that, writing beat poetry and doing spoken word with my great radio voice, blah, blah, blah. And also mixing, turntablism, cut and paste, making sound and noise and industrial and all that. So I've lost the old gift 
or the attitude of trying to make jangly power pop, which is interesting because it's still there and I love it. I'm, well, and you still recorded these things, knew that you can still do it even if it's not freshly written. That's true. Yeah, I can do remakes. Of course, that's always had, just like what's on Afterlife, I've always had a strange attitude about that to where it's always fun to remake an old classic, but it almost always comes out sounding better, but also sounding forced. You just lose what that original bad quality had. Well, I would think, you know, particularly if a song is very emotional, that if it came out of something personal, but given the level of your output, you know, something emotional and personal was not happening every day, right? That so many of these, it's not so weird, your level of output, if you just think about what people do for their jobs every day. You're going in, so I'm sure you weren't recording necessarily, was it actually eight plus hours, five days a week, or was it even half that time would still produce a lot of freaking music? That's right, and then it would be days with no recording. And, of course, there were also times in the 45 years that I would actually get so frustrated, I would quit. Ha, ha, ha. My retirement, right? You know, here's my final. I'm still doing that stuff. Playing games with people, saying this is my final album. I even posted on Facebook or something and freaked people out by saying, this is my final year. Right after January 1st, and it's like, what do you mean, final year? Don't you dare say that, whatever. But it's all part of my game, my brand. It's all perverse humor with a bunch of sincerity, you know, genuine, nothing fake. And how about this new government we have now? And just the world, the world is just imploding right before our faces. We're going to talk about one of your spoken word pieces toward the end of now. I want to dwell a little more on these two songs about your arrangement sensibilities, whether they're the way you currently write or the way that it developed over the years. This version has a pretty long pop music, Going looking back at that. It's a pretty long outro. That It's like you decided that you really liked this horn sound. It's synth horns, right? That's right. And then are playing this. You don't really notice until that section, and it repeats a few times, really how good the groove has been to this song throughout got this it's kind of i don't know louisiana jazz or something is, is it honky-tonk piano if it's slow <laughs> I, I don't really know <laughs> i don't know i don't know it's a great groove throughout the whole thing so you said at this point you were doing this with a band or were you still doing all the parts you're still playing drums like on this song that's me that's not a band yeah it's all the almost the whole entire afterlife is me there's some drummers that came in but uh and this lead guitar sound which is sounds double tracked It's very sort of 70s George Harrison to me is kind of what, what that... Is it slide? Is it slide or does it just sound like slide? I think it's bottleneck. Okay. And double track, you're correct, yeah. I thought it was interesting that to add the 16th note tambourine as often as it's in there. Like it's not just, you know, we're going to the fast bridge section and now the fast things... No, it's right... Like this thing to add this extra tension there in a pretty relaxed part of the song. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. That's great. But again, all of these things just come out when they come out. 
even the fact that we were dicking around with a synthesizer and all of a sudden blood, sweat and tears came in the room. And, you know, we laughed at those crazy horns. And I said, should we? Should we not? It's kind of cheesy, you know, and of course, it, it's so good with the bending. Damn, that damn. Once that was on the table, the fact that you still have in parts of the song, you doing this falsetto, whoa, 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 like that could have just been horn throughout. But no, we got to keep that, you know, that's part of your signature sound of days of old is these ridiculous falsettos. that I, <laughs> I loved hearing you and Jason Faulkner talking about my versatile voice. <laughs> That killed me too, yeah. And it's so true. I mean, with time here, I was talking about that I missed the good old days when I was recording and, you know, and, and younger and singing up high like this all the time, But which I, you know, I can still try to do it. Just like any older man, it, even McCartney and stuff, you can't hit some of these super high notes. Those were good days. And, you know, like I said, the, the versatile voice was always good. Recording this much, you're always practicing your instruments because you're you're having to do, you know, I got to play this guitar riff right now. So I have to be able to play this guitar riff. Yeah, but no practice. And that goes to this very day to where... Sadly, so tragically, I hardly ever even pick up my acoustic anymore here at home. But when I do, I better be ready with a little recorder in my hand because automatically something distinctive, unique will come out. And I'm thinking, well, if I don't record it, I'll, I'll never remember it. As far as what we're talking about, when I picked up a guitar, that was to record. I didn't practice the, the lines to do. I'm sure maybe one, two, three times to go over it. It's all pretty much spontaneous. So that part in Take Back, you know, can you say, say a little about, I mean, is that the kind of thing that is as spontaneous as that to come up with that part? It's not an alternate tuning, is it, on Take Back? There's open strings. It's not an alternate so it's a matter of open strings. That usually is the way to introduce thickness to chords without having to think about it too hard. <laughs> that you take your hand, you move it up a few frets, and wow, there's open strings hanging there. That's cool. I don't know what the what interval it is, but it sounds really good. Yeah. Well, that's story of my life as far as, well, write down this chord. Well, I don't think it has a name, so just write it. Sometimes just to, so you don't forget it, you'll write down a little star, or you'll write down a, an icon just to remind you of what the stupid chord was. Let me pull out and take back when it actually does get to an instrumental. So this is about 143 in and actually gets a different chord eventually. So just the fact that you had established in the other, let's call it the B section, you know, it's the second half of every verse. But now here we, we have in the instrumental part, you're you're doing some variation off of that with some those extra low notes. Da, da, da. Again, can you say anything about where that came from, how that connects to the part you were playing through the rest of the song? No, that's what my finger did. It is an E flat bass note on the D string. Actually, I'm walking over to pick up my guitar. <laughs> So it's an E flat major seventh. Just three strings. And then down to A flat bass. 
That's a six. Major seventh. So that's like an A flat chord with an open. What's open? The G string is open. Real super simple, but it, it sounds very complicated if you don't know what. Da, 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 and then the bass note goes up to C sharp. Yeah, so I don't know what it is about those kind of chord progressions that feel off-centered emotional in a way that is appealing to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's deep. It's from the heart, definitely. It's from the heart, yet it's something that your fingers just fell over. It would be a different thing if you wrote entirely with your head, which is exactly what I'm saying with how the vocal lines come out, that unless the chord is already doing something weird, it's at least, I don't know, you have to stretch if you actually, you know, and have be thinking Miles Davis to actually do vocal melodies that are leaving the chord and flying around in strange ways. Like those are usually by nature come out more simply, but that's why I was pointing out, you know, that your use of range you know, not even between songs. Of course, if you're doing a lot of songs, you want to sing, you know, challenge yourself. You want to exhibit different vocal aspects of yourself just by singing different ranges. But even just, you know, what melodies come to you, you know, when Bob Dylan is squawking something out, the limitations of his instrument, his vocal instrument show in what he's doing. He doesn't try to like think like he's playing trumpet with his voice and have it spiral in strange ways that we hear regularly on your songs. Well, he's just a country boy, you know. I'm Miles Davis. But that's perfect, too, as far as what you said. Piano or keyboard in general is good for that. What I just played you just then on the acoustic sounds more like pre-written. And that's like classical music. Yes. One of my favorite things to do. Piano's never been an instrument that I can like actually play like on stage. <laughs> but sitting at a piano and playing semi-random jazz chords in no particular rhythm, like it's a great pastime. <laughs> it's remarkable because it's numbers on keys. It's, it's simply what it, numerology. You're like playing a little computer almost on a piano because it's numerology. You can sort of see, okay, this is where it starts and then it goes up and then the black key makes it flat or sharp. Oh, I love it. Even though I can't really read music. I mean, that's an old tired question. Can you really read music? Well, yeah, slowly. That's strictly for classical people or people that want to deal with that. But you have to have an ear for music. Well, that's so much more important than knowing where the notes fit on a page, you know. So while we're talking about Take Back here, I'll insert a little bit of the version from the Young and Moore show, Young and Moore versus the whole goddamn stinking world. So you said that was recorded at the same time as the Conscientious Objector. The Conscientious Objector version is roughly what we're hearing here, whereas the Young and Moore show, it's got this elaborate hammer-on guitar solo. Was that because that's what Terry Burroughs, a.k.a. Yukio Young, was adding with some of those textures, or did you just have a fundamentally different approach when you're doing that album?
both, but he did that middle section, yeah. And I was thrilled, even though it's almost over the top. Yeah, but that's fantastic. But just adding drums and, you know, there's more layers to it, background vocals. I come to prefer the, the naked version, though, just without drums and all that. I think so for this one, yeah. Just given the message of the song and kind of the point of view that it's from, having a symphony come behind you as you're whining about wanting to go home doesn't <laughs> is an interesting picture, <laughs> but... Uh, I like to stay home, yeah. <laughs> well, let's get... Uh, I guess we might as well move... Get the third one out there. So something actually recent. The house is not in order. So this is credited to you and Alan Jenkins and the Kettering Vampires. It's from the 2018, The Embodiment of Progressive Ideals. So it's one of those poems. In fact, I'll even play the end of... Uh, this is almost the beginning of the album. You've got basically a 40-second intro, the Sweet Tea, which I'm not going to play in full as part of this because it is a separate thing. But at least the end noises the synthy sense of wonder sort of sets up, you know, sonically goes right into the drilling sound that starts out this thing. Were you working on the, just the poem here or did you do the soundscape? How is your interaction with this band work on this album? Well, you'll be happy to know and relieved <laughs> that this came about simply cut and paste. All of the vocals were already done as spoken word and I handed them over to him and he did the entire music separately. After the fact, I had no input to the music, and he even edited the voice. So a lot of the music is done to follow what the voice is doing, or a lot of the music's done to follow his editing of what the voice is doing. So yeah, we didn't really work at all together on this. I gave him carte blanche to use. I gave him tons of stuff. And this is what he did. And all the music is him as far as, you know, the actual composition, all of it. All right, well, let's play it in full, and then we'll talk about the poem, at least, and how you felt about the result. Morlocks, the house is not in order. Secure horizons, closet cosmosis, the house is not in order. Morlocks, transition device, Assumes good faith. Outmoded sensibilities. Courtroom, bathroom, leak. More lines. The house is not in order. Due process. We digress. Hurry. See if you qualify. Verify. Posthumorous comptroller. Acidic ridicule. The house is not in order. It's pretty clear that you have no idea what you were talking about. I couldn't write a plain song if I tried. What I have tried, it comes out as satire, or parody, or satire. The house is not in order. Dictatorial memorial. But bet I didn't. But bet, but bet, bet your life, bet. My father used to call my mother, Beth. I feel a cerebral hemorrhage coming on fast with fries. Jealous, zealous, tell us fellas, yellow submarine sandwich from Subway. The house is not in order. 
embodiment of progressive ideals. This is the greatest day of my life so far. Morons. Blinky face. Don't come back now, you hear? This is on an album of all, all spoken word stuff. I heard spoken word stuff in little bits on a couple other recent releases. Is this still a fairly new thing, or is this on a dozen albums that I don't know about? <laughs> this technique. No, it's the only one that has this technique. In fact, I often get the impulse to do my own spoken word with music backing, but I always end up kind of too lazy and also don't want to ruin the spoken word, so I'll just leave it. That can always be done later as far as addition. So many of my recent band camps of this past decade have spoken word bits. And most of it's lo-fi. Sometimes I'll hook up high-quality mic to do some professional radio-sounding voice. But my favorite thing, and I'm using it right now, is just a little Sony MP3 recorder, dictation machine. And it sounds fine. In fact, some of that album... I can't even remember what it's called, the ideals. The embodiment of progressive ideals. Yeah, I, my, my mind is mush. The embodiment, let's just call it embodiment of Prague, embodiment of Prague. Some of that stuff has the lo-fi spoken word, and some has hi-fi with a different mic. You can't really tell. All the other spoken word of my catalog doesn't use this concept, like with him when he added all the music. It does sound like you're setting yourself up, you know, if you, if you record enough of this, you could have, you know, 50 posthumous albums that of people putting instrumental backing over your spoken word stuff. If you just keep up the output of that. Are you trying to get rid of me? <laughs> you just got a plan for the, uh, the future, for the afterlife. Well, let's talk about this one though. So my expectations, it was so organic that I was imposing Obviously, Alan must have just been influenced by the tone you set up here for what music he was going to put down, because I expect the music that he chose, I kept expecting it to go into Pink Floyd's Interstellar Overdrive. Like, it's that juk, 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 and it's about to break loose, and it never really does. <laughs> but you've got, you know, just just talking about Morlocks, and you've got some little sci-fi things in the wordplay here, Closet Cosmosis, Secure Horizon, you know, that it sounds like something that could be in the prog rock canon, let's say that. It's probably a, a correct assumption that he was inspired to do the music by what he was hearing me say, you know, and that's no big deal, but I, I never even thought about that, you know, but, but sure, his timing, his arrangements, phrasing of the music, you know, or even like you said, if it goes with the, the lyric content, the sci-fi thing and the prog thing, progressive. Do you want to talk about what some of the lines in here mean, or at least how you, is this as unthought out as everything that you've been expressing about the way you write music, that you just kind of sit down and this hits the paper, or is there are there revisions? Are there at least make a second pass and a new pun occurs to you and you insert that? Like, how does this actually work? Almost all of my spoken word is written on blank sheets of paper until the blank sheet of paper is full, then the poem is finished, and then it turn over to a new blank sheet of paper. So a lot of the poetry, yeah, there's no rewrites hardly at all, sometimes, very rarely, but it's all just lists of phrases, and I have notebooks galore of this kind of stuff. 
I'll come across, oh, that's a great word. Oh, my God, that's a great phrase. And they'll just be written. But what's so funny is that, you know, like I said, I don't really rearrange them. I don't cross lines out. This is just what, like you said, they comes right out of the pen. Nothing relates on purpose to the previous line. And yet so often it seems like, wow, that's brilliant how that came together. And it's all just happenstance. Well, it's certainly not uncommon for you to, even in your lyrics, when you're going into a list mode, uh, to get into something that sounds like it's on a commercial, right? <laughs> You've got your little Beatles to S- Subway to Subway Sandwich, and you have other songs that are entirely what the reading off the bag of chips, that it's the first <laughs> compostable bag. That's right. <laughs> Outmoded Sensibilities, Courtroom Bathroom Leak. So even the rest here, you're saying all this was just determined by how Alan laid this out. You didn't have anything in mind in particular. Never, no. And never did I say, this works, but I don't like the way this works. I'm never like that. I'm instantly supportive and approving, and it's just, why should I try to pick it apart? There is no rhyme or reason to any of it. So it's like, let's move forward. You know, I never say, well, I I like this part. I don't like that part. So I'm easy to work with. And so that's why he did all that music. And his own music sounds like that. It's like psychedelic surf music. It's a surf guitar thing, you know, but it's he's a great producer and it's all done at home. So I was thrilled. All right. So if we do want to give any sort of analysis of your poem here, it would be not analyzing how you came up with this idea and then the next idea and how the things are. It's, it actually would be a matter of like you've just done the automatic writing thing. And we would be analyzing your psyche (laughs) as opposed to the poem itself. And after it's done, it comes out as stream of consciousness, even though it's not really stream because there's there's breaks between lines as far as being written. I'll put the book down and come to it the next day and write a line under the previous line. And suddenly they sound like they go together somehow. I don't know. Well, so overall, I mean, this house is not in order. Was that personal self-criticism? Do you feel like that's what the whole stance of this poem is? Or is it more talking about the state of society or something like that? It cannot be analyzed. I mean, that's your perception of what, you know, it it wasn't meant to mean anything, especially now that you know that these lines were all put together haphazardly. Yeah, There's no statement. The house is not in order. That's just fun to say. I don't care what it means. Is it about my, my dirty bedroom? Is it about government? The house is not in order. I think I even stole that from somewhere. I saw it written. I don't know if it was music or whatever. I do a lot of that, too, obviously. Don't we all? You'll see something in the newspaper, in a magazine. You know, Like I said, oh, that's a great phrase. Well, do you have any idea why that would connect to Morlocks in particular, which are what the underground people in what sci-fi show are they from? Are they- oh, my God, the movie, uh, Time Machine. I was thinking Doctor Who villains, but no, no. They had white hair and glowing eyes. That's 1960. H.G. Wells, yo. Yeah, the Morlocks. And of course, that's my name, Moore. So yeah, it has no meaning. It has nothing to do with house is not in order. Morlocks, it just flows off the tongue. That's all it is. It's text raid. The fact that you're delivering these things with utter conviction <laughs> conviction I, thought, I was i was hoping you'd say that word i was going to say it's very conviction definitely and yet it doesn't actually mean anything but then there are parts of it that i couldn't write a plain song if i tried when i tried it comes out as satire or parody or satire which you know that could have been out of an interview 
right? It's straight up. Like, I like these overtly self-referential bits in here in a context that I have no idea how it relates to that. <laughs> That's right. There is no context. Do you feel like this is a natural outgrowth of the way that you have written a lot of your lyrics over the years, that they're also, you know, similarly like, oh, there's just a cool slogan. Bam, it's a song. I don't know what it means. Who cares? Going back to phonography, that's full of stuff like that. You familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Goodbye, piano. (laughs) There's strange lyrics on some of the songs. They're just phrases. It's wordplay. And I'm more into that than I ever have been before. I'm just, I love wordplay and most people do. It's an art form, you know, it's a talent. So we're ahead of schedule enough that I wouldn't mind inserting another song, which we don't have to talk about in depth, but I really wanted something that was more fucked up. (laughs) And I thought that this uh, spoken word one qualified, but since you didn't do the music on that, we need to show the people how off kilter things can get. So I, I was thinking of the song Pervert from World War Four, if that's an okay one to insert here. Yes, it is. And don't ask me to analyze it. I have no idea what I'm trying to say. It's, it's humor. It's me.
we don't need to go into the sonic specifics of this song so much, but do you want to just say a little about, you know, over the years, you've done a lot of different sonic experiments of this sort. This has definitely got some some residence in it. I know you had a song about the residence done in the residence style. Like, is that the, and a lot of Zappa influenced kind of, do you want to say a little about like weird 20th century stuff that Zappa was into? Have you listened to, or is it really all coming through various parts of prog rock? It's a little bit of everything. I mean, that's a perfect example. A lot of Zappa, a lot of residents. And it too has an interesting bridge. It kind of stops. And is it piano? I forget, but I am a pervert. And I'm also, <laughs> and I'm also 67 years old tomorrow. So it's like, ew, a 67 year old pervert. Well, I thought you were at least in your 70s. So congratulations. So I'm still young enough to be a pervert. Was that a compilation? Yes, it is. It's the best of this previous decade on two CDs. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of times I don't know where the original song is from because I'm listening to a lot of these things. Even phonography that you mentioned is itself a compilation, right? That this is stuff that went back to your first late 60s, early 70s. And so I would think naturally when you're doing these compilations, you're trying to find the stuff that you think people would want to, (laughs) that is the smoothest, even if it's lo-fi. You know, try to avoid filler, even though that's one of my trademarks, is to leave the filler in. And that's why I have so much material. Well, that's why I like the World War Four album, that there's enough stuff in there. Unlike this, Afterlife one is a wonderful album for introducing your music to new people. And it's great that, you know, it all sounds so nice and slick. And the same goes for the thing that you did, which just did with Jason Faulkner, that we'll hear something off, off of in a few minutes here. But yeah, having a best of your more residence-like material also seems useful to get at, you know, just the various weird things that you're into, especially in the early 70s when everybody was in extra weird things. Yeah. Did you feel like this song, Pervert, was kind of a throwback to that time? Has your attitude changed in terms of how much fucked up sonic (laughs) experimentation you're doing? You were saying that that's actually one of your sole interests now, in addition to the beat poetry thing, is doing these cutting and pasting electronic things. Is that right? I also heard some classical well not classical but like instrumental piano improvised stuff yeah tons of it's all good yeah Mm. definitely like myself and my own songwriting which is of course much more limited i started in the early 90s and but kind of that was my experimental period more in college and then it smoothed out whether to please audiences or to make something that i don't know it's actually more being honest with what i actually like that I still enjoy listening to The Residence, but I don't have the urge to record some... I remember something that I started in 1991 was like, I'm going to record the sound of the body, and I will record you know, something that sounds like a heartbeat, and then I will chant, I am, I am. It's the central ego over it. You know, this very like pseudo-60s trippy, and I have no urge to do that kind of stuff anymore. So that's kind of a matter of getting a little more tired such that doing more what is directly natural, which to me is simpler melodies. Have you? Is there anything like that in terms of your chord progressions getting simpler over time or anything like that, or you feel like it's all more or less uniform throughout your career? It's all uniform, and it's just a big salad. It's stirring the salad, all different stuff, all the time. Diversity is my religion, and that's what I have problems with struggling with mainstream showbiz. It's to where, I mean, everybody wants the safe stuff, and I've always been like that. And every one of my things sounds like a mixtape. I never want to really have one style and one sound. 
It's not just for filler's sake or for things out of context. Whatever the mood strikes, you know, and the, yeah, experimentation is top. In fact, like I said, it it's kind of boring for me to sit and grab the acoustic and see if I can write and record a classic Arch D.V. Moore song of the 70s. And I'm sure I could, but I just don't. I don't know why. I'd rather just start the recorder and start building strange sounds and backwards and effects and stolen found sounds. I love that, you know. And loops are so popular these days, you know, to where something from an old radio broadcast gets looped, like with My Life in the Bush of Ghosts and things like that, to where on top of beats and whatever. But I love that stuff. Are there times where you would start to write a song and then it's kind of sounding too much like something you've already written and you just eh, move on to something else? Yeah, I've abandoned stuff like that. But I, that's why, like I said, I always try to make sure I have a recorder to keep that idea down. And also even writing lyrics on sheets. I got 10,000 loose sheets of words, you know, so. And I'll abandon songs, definitely. Well, it's good that you've started working with a music historian <laughs> while you're still among us to make sense of all this stuff. I guess that's about all I've got here. Do we want to just turn to I Hate People? We can play it as we go out. So this is you and Jason Faulkner from the 2017 Make It Be album. The song itself was from 1980 for Drum Drops, I believe, though it doesn't sound much like this version at all. This really does sound polished for the people (laughs) that you hate. And it happens to be the very first song we attempted. And that was like, you can imagine how thrilled I was to do that album out there in Hollywood. It was crazy, you know, and then it was totally discouraging because we didn't know what to do with it. And he had connections, you know, from the Gray's days. And I was hoping that he was going to be able to place it, as it were, that stupid word, place, place my music with, with somebody that has money, you know, who knows. But he just couldn't do it. We're still great friends in in touch he's busy with back but hopefully we'll do another thing sometime who knows maybe this is not consoling for you but i feel like the music industry collapse this leveling that's happened seems like it would be to the benefit of an artist <laughs> like yourself the thing that you've been doing all along is now what more and more people are forced to do <laughs> but the thing is a lot of them are kind of spoiled that they oh you know i had major label exposure and now that you know they're that has fallen through i guess it it makes me think that their songwriting was more opportunity based than like just something that they just had to do for pleasure exactly exactly yeah, commerce ruins art great example is andy partridge i mean he is forever bruised by his experience of having to be run through the music mill you know right i would love to talk to him i've talked to colin molding on this show but he's already uh like done interviews about every single song he ever wrote for XTC. So I think he's rather burned out about doing that kind of thing. But, you know, as a fan, and that is definitely one of my favorite bands of all time, he released a lot of his demos from the past. Like, can't you just keep doing those? Can't you, can't you morph into our Stevie Moore? But I think once you've released Oranges and Lemons with that production budget, then it sort of spoils you for maybe for just going back and cranking out album after album of things on your own. I'm not sure. Yeah, he definitely is pretty burned out. I mean, yeah, like you said, the Fuzzy Warbles were fantastic, but I mean, I guess he feels that's kind of pointless too. And now look, he's writing for the monkeys. How amazing is that? Thank you. I appreciate it. This is fantastic support. And I'll see you in the afterlife. All right, here it is. I hate people.
Warm regards. Thanks so much to Stevie. If you like that last song, you're going to want to look back to my episode 47, where I talked to Jason Faulkner 
also about that same album, Make It Be, among other things. And the reason I talked to Jason back then, I was actually supposed to talk to Stevie at that point, but he had some health issues. He canceled all his interviews and Jason took him over. So I was very excited to talk to Jason then and more excited to talk to Stevie now. Given the size of Stevie's catalog, it was really good that I spent a lot of time prepping for that interview back in uh, summer 2017 and then had the chance to listen to way more of his stuff for this interview. I've still, of course, only scratched the surface, but I, I tried to hit a representative sampling. I would really just recommend going to his Bandcamp page and just immerse yourself. But this new Afterlife album is just a really great introduction. I think a great thing to gift to somebody else that might be interested in a legendary, if not particularly well-known artist. So again, it's rstevemore.com or rstevemore.bandcamp.com. My next interview is going to be with a newer artist, Andrew McMahon. He's got quite a big following and really actually sounds like something that came out in this decade. And is another really interesting guy to talk to. So check that out at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. As always, I'll remind you that really your best listening experience will come if you go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, make a small donation that will give you a personalized feed address. And if you're listening to that feed, you will never hear a commercial. There are quite a few bonus extensions of interviews from earlier in my run. I will start doing those again if I get a substantial presence of Patreon supporters. I have continued to be more or less on strike from recording new episodes since in mid-March recording episode 100. So five more of these at least are going to come out over the next weeks. I'm sure that I will end up recording more of them after that. But you can make that more likely if you become a supporter. I will be using my time off from interviewing to finish up some albums that I've had in the hopper for a long time, so I'll keep you up to date on where those are at. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. I sure like talking to Stevie. I'm actually going to end with yet another little song, one that I mentioned in the course of our discussion, Goodbye Piano, from 1976's Phonography. Keep on music in. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. It were not.